Please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode. Welcome to the Investing Insights podcast from Morningstar. In this week's podcast, David Blanchett shares advice for retirees in today's low-yield environment. Amy Arnott and Christine Benz discuss their research on portfolio diversification. Christine Benz talks strategy about withdrawing money from retirement funds. And Greg Warren talks about Berkshire Hathaway's valuation. Let's get started. Here are David Blanchett from Morningstar Investment Management and Christine Benz from Morningstar, Inc. Hi, I'm Christine Benz from Morningstar.com. Although bond yields have ticked up a bit in recent months, they're still quite low by historical norms. Joining me to discuss how to wring a livable income stream from a retirement portfolio is David Blanchett. He's head of retirement research for Morningstar Investment Management. David, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. David, uh, let's talk about uh, something that you have researched extensively, the interplay between yields and safe withdrawal rates. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and what the research suggests that retirees should do in terms of their withdrawal rates when yields are as low as they are today? Yeah. So, you know, there's been a lot of research going back over two decades now on how much you have to have saved when you first retire. Um, and, you know, not surprisingly, the assumed rate of return on a portfolio really, really determines what that number is going to be. I mean, if, if, if bonds are, you know, if we, if we had 30-year bonds right now yielding 8%, you could have a pretty nice safe withdrawal rate. But today, to your earlier point, bond yields are relatively low. And so I think that retirees have to kind of take a step back and say, what, what is a safe withdrawal rate today, given lower possible returns in the future? So looking at the standard sort of 4% guideline, would you suggest that retirees who are just starting retirement think about maybe taking a lower amount because of those lower yields? So I actually really like 4%. Um, you know, I, I've done a lot of research. So if you, here's the thing. So 4%, the rule itself, it's been, it's been redone lots of ways, but it's, it's largely based on historical U.S. returns. Um, if you rerun the analysis and you kind of better calibrate the return assumptions to today, you know, the, the results that led to 4% lead to like 3% or less, okay? But here's the thing. There's a lot of incredibly restrictive assumptions in that analysis. You like have to have a certain amount of income every year for 30 years increased by inflation. Um, you know, it deems failure. It's just, you're following $1 short in that 30th year of retirement. So I still think that 4% is a relatively good starting place for a lot of retirees. Not everyone is a, is a healthy married couple age 65. Now, that being said, there's other important questions too, like how much guaranteed income do you have? You know, how willing are you to kind of cut back on um, if you have to? But, but you know, high level, yes, like things are uh, more difficult today than they've been historically on average. But 4%, I think, still is, is an okay place to start. Okay. So let's talk about the portfolio itself and how retirees should think about constructing their portfolios in this very low yield environment. I talk to a lot of retirees who are kind of inclined to throw uh, bonds and cash overboard because of their very low yields. They are investing exclusively in dividend paying stocks. What do you think about such a strategy um, that emphasizes stocks perhaps to the exclusion of safer assets? Yeah, so you know, I retirees, you know, part are, are an odd bunch to some extent. Um, if you look at surveys, you know, so when when I do research on retirement, you know, I assume that people are going to spend down their nest eggs. Like you just don't, you don't, you save to spend it. But that's actually not what happens, right? People in retirement really like the idea 
of living off of income, right? They want to leave the principal alone to kind of, you know, hedge against an uncertain lifespan. You've got healthcare costs, you've got bequest goals, all these things. And so the goal is often, I'm going to live off of the income. Well, like that is, that's, that's, I think, doable, you know, if, if your portfolio is yielding, if you've got bonds that yield 5% a year, um, we're not there right now. And so I think a lot of retirees are saying, well, hey, you know, how can I generate income from a portfolio? And one way to do that is by owning dividend-paying stocks. And, um, you know, the whole, like, it's, it's not necessarily a rational approach, but it's an approach that aligns with the goals of retirees. And I've been looking at that topic using historical data. So um, you can look at data going back from like 1870 to 2019 for 16 different countries. And you can say, hey, you know, how does the optimal strategy change for someone who wants income in different yield environments? And, you know, long story short, in an environment like today, where you've got dividend yields that are roughly equivalent to the yield on treasury bonds, um, it can make a lot more sense, or at least it has made a lot more sense historically to allocate more to equities that pay dividends versus just owning bonds, because you can get just as much yield or higher from those stocks and possible capital appreciation. Now, I do worry about retirees going a bit overboard and just, you know, saying I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to own any bonds, I'm going to own a lot of equities, and then the markets collapse. But at least historically speaking, that's been a, a pretty viable strategy. Okay. So if a retiree wants to emphasize dividend payers as, as part of their portfolio, what's a reasonable allocation? Um, can you give us sort of a ballpark estimate or how should retirees approach the percentage allocation to stocks relative to perhaps safer assets like fixed income and, and cash? Yeah, there, it's it's hard to generalize like one number. You know, If I had to pick a number off the top of my head, I would say maybe 50%. I mean, one benefit about owning dividend-paying stocks is that they're typically relatively mature companies and mature industries that should do relatively well if the markets go down. Like they're not going to, these aren't tech stocks that are going to go up 100% and and they're relatively safer. Now, you know, to the extent that you as a retiree are are okay with, you know, not, you know, if you're not going to sell your portfolio, no matter what, if you're, if you're comfortable holding on for the long term, maybe you can have all of your portfolio and dividend-paying stocks, you have to understand the risk because you know I, I I just did some research back you know looking at participant trading in 2020, and 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 the folks that made the biggest mistakes were those that were older and invested aggressively, and older being defined as someone who's near retirement and invested in mostly equities. And so my my one concern about this recommendation is it's kind of against what you see retirees actually do, which is they tend to freak out a little bit when, when equity markets fall if they're ve- invested aggressively. So to the extent that you can cannot react to a market downturn, then I think you can allocate potentially pretty heavily to dividend-paying stocks, but just be aware that there's also um, a lot of risk there. Okay. I want to talk about other higher yielding security types, um, maybe bank loan investments or junk bonds, emerging markets bonds. How do higher yielding, higher risk fixed income investments fit into the picture, if at all? So they can. I think that one thing that people need to really be realize is that the realized return on, on high yield slash junk bonds is not the yield when you buy it, right? Defaults are a really big deal. And the actual spread in the realized return of, of, of higher yielding bonds is actually quite similar 
to those with with better credit quality due to the impact of defaults. And the, the problem, I mean, the problem with defaults is just that that when they happen, it's it's somewhat catastrophic, but it doesn't usually happen it, all that often. And so I think that that you can you can you can think about you know you know doing things to increase the income of your portfolio. But I would just say that, you know, like, but you're also increasing the risk. I think that we often define the risk of a portfolio as equities or fixed income. In some sense, high yield bonds can be riskier than equities, right? So don't kind of kid yourself thinking, I'm going to, I'm going to buy some high yield bonds and it's still not making my portfolio very aggressive. It can have just as much an effect or more as buying, you know, like mega cap high quality stocks. So is it a, a way to think about it perhaps that I use such investments to be sort of equity substitutes as opposed to supplant fixed income allocations? Yes. I mean, a lot of the things that you mentioned are, you know, you know, people might call them fixed income, but they're very risky fixed income. And so, you know, if you want a, a different type of, of, you know, I mean, I define equity as like as higher volatility, right? Higher chance for loss. A lot of the, the investments that you mentioned, especially high yield bonds, have that potential. So just view them accordingly in a portfolio, like a, a, a safe portfolio is not a 50% allocation to high yield bonds, 50% allocation to large cap stocks. You've got a very risky portfolio there. Understand the risk of the investments that you're using. Okay, David, such a helpful overview. Thanks so much for being here. Sure thing. Thanks for watching. I'm Christine Benz for Morningstar.com. Expand your investing horizons and look to the long term with Morningstar's podcast, The Long View. Join hosts Christine Benz and Jeff Patak as they talk to influential leaders in investing, advice, and personal finance. Search for and subscribe to The Long View today. Now, here are Amy Arnott from Morningstar Research Services and Susan Jabinski and Christine Benz from Morningstar, Inc. Hi, I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Investors may struggle with the concept of portfolio diversification, specifically which asset classes they should add to their portfolio if they want to diversify their U.S. stock exposure. Morningstar recently published some new research on the correlations of various asset classes versus U.S. stocks. Joining me today to discuss some of the study's findings are two of the paper's authors, Amy Arnott, who is a portfolio strategist with Morningstar, and Christine Benz, Morningstar's Director of Personal Finance. Thank you both for being here today. Great to be here. Uh, Christine, let's start by first defining our terms. Can you explain briefly what correlations are and how investors can use them to construct portfolios? Sure, Susan. Correlations describe the extent to which the performance of two assets have been correlated with one another. And to measure that, we use a statistic called correlation coefficient. And what you're looking for if, if you want to build a diversified portfolio is that you'd like to find a negative correlation coefficient. If the number is negative one, that means that the two assets are inversely correlated. When one goes up, the other goes down. If their correlation coefficient is 1.0, that means that performance is very much in sync, so they have less diversifying abilities with one another. It's important to remember, though, that correlation coefficient just captures direction rather than magnitude. So if I have two investments, one goes down 2% and the other goes down 20%, well, that's a big difference to me as an investor, but correlation coefficient doesn't pick up on that differential. It's just picking up on the fact that they both went down. 
Now, the study that you both were recently involved in looks at the correlations of various asset classes against U.S. stocks specifically. Amy, talk a little bit about why U.S. stocks were really sort of the starting point here. Sure. So a lot of investors have kind of core holdings in U.S. stocks, and that's also the major type of risk that people are trying to diversify away from. So we used that as our starting point, and we measured correlations against the Morningstar U.S. market index. Now, as you noted in the report, correlations tend to increase during periods of market stress. So let's talk a little bit about 2020 specifically, which where we did experience some market stress. What in broad strokes did correlations look like during that period, Amy? So we did see correlations increase across most major asset classes early last year during the market turbulence. There were some fairly big increases in correlations, especially in uh, non-treasury bonds like corporates, municipal bonds, and global bonds, as well as sectors like real estate and utilities. So basically, the trend was investors were selling off any type of higher risk asset, and that was reflected in the correlation numbers. So then how did what we saw in 2020 with correlations perhaps differ from what we had been seeing for, say, the past decade or, or two prior to that? Well, for the most part, what we saw in 2020 was really a continuation of previous trends. Overall, over the past 10 to 20 years, we've seen correlations trending up, and that pattern continued in a number of different areas, um, including equity market sectors, investment styles, factor profiles, and even some alternative investments. Um, correlations for international markets, commodities, and small cap stocks remained fairly high as they have been over the past few years, while those on treasuries and cash remained low. So let's dig a little bit deeper into a couple of asset classes that maybe you know investors have traditionally been using for diversification. Uh, Christine, let's talk about bonds first. Um, what types of bonds have been traditionally better diversifiers against U.S. equities? And then conversely, maybe which bond types haven't done as great of a job when it comes to diversification? Right. Amy referenced a couple of them. Treasury bonds have been pretty consistently effective as diversifiers when we look over time periods as far back as, as the past 20 years. Um, cash has recently looked a little better as a diversifier alongside treasuries. A lot of other fixed income categories have been less effective as diversifiers. Some of them you might not expect to be especially effective. So the whole category of lower quality bonds has not served investors especially well as, as diversification tools. So this would include junk bonds, emerging markets bonds, bank loans. And that's because that, as Amy said, people are often getting out of risky assets when they're getting out of stocks and, they, and investors view these fixed income types as riskier fixed income assets. What's a little bit more surprising to me is the extent to which you see not uh, great diversifying abilities among categories like 
uh, funds that fall in into Morningstar's intermediate term core plus category. These are funds that are generally pretty high quality, but include some lower quality exposures around the margins. These haven't served as investors especially well as diversifiers. But here again, I would point out that magnitude is important, that uh, even though these categories Correlation coefficients with equities aren't necessarily in negative territory. Historically, they have been able to deliver positive returns during extended periods when stocks have been down. So did the historical correlation pattern that we had observed really hold true for bonds in 2020 as well? Well, it generally did. So we saw treasuries come through generally very nicely, especially short and intermediate term treasuries. Cash, as I mentioned, looked relatively better than it has. And I think that that may simply be that the yield differential between bonds, certainly between treasuries and cash, is still pretty low today. So some investors might have viewed cash as a worthy alternative to treasuries or or other bond types simply because they weren't earning that much more by taking on the risk of bonds. So generally generally speaking, I think we saw a persistence of some of the patterns that we've seen historically. So, you know, given that it seems like treasuries have actually done a pretty good job diversifying both in 2020 and over longer periods, is it fair, given where the bond market and the stock market are today, is it fair for investors to sort of expect treasuries to continue to be good diversifiers for, say, the next 10 or 20 years? That's a question that was really nagging at us as we worked on this paper, because we have experienced a really specific sort of investment environment over the past couple of decades where we've had generally declining bond yields, which is good for treasuries. We've had very low inflation. And so I think the question in my mind is whether Treasury's effectiveness as ballast for equities will carry forward into the future in an environment where perhaps we will have rising yields, where we could have more inflation. Uh, When we look back to periods like the 70s and early 80s, where we had higher inflation and higher interest rates, treasuries weren't quite as effective during that period. But one thing I come back to is that there's quite an intuitive reason that investors gravitate to treasuries in periods of stock market duress. It's mainly that they're viewed as a store of value, an emblem of quality, for investors, and I think that that will be persistent. And then another tailwind for treasuries in periods of stock market stress is that those periods often coincide with periods of economic weakness. And that's often when we see yields declining, which is good for high quality bonds. It it tends to be a good environment for treasuries because they're a reflection of whatever's going on in the interest rate environment. So I think that those tailwinds are likely to persist unless we see inflation and interest rates move into some really uh, historically greater, higher pattern than we expect to see. Now let's pivot over and talk a little bit about international stocks, which are another component that are, you know, that investors often have in their portfolios. Amy, you suggested earlier that international stocks maybe weren't the best diversifiers for U.S. equities in, in 2020. Talk a little bit about the correlations there. Sure. So a lot of people think of international stocks as being a one of the first places to look to for diversification. 
Um, but if you look at correlation coefficients, most international markets have actually shown fairly high correlations with U.S. stocks recently. And COVID-19 has obviously had a worldwide impact. So losses on international stocks weren't really that much lower in early 2020. And then how did that compare again over the, the longer time frame that, that the study looked at? So if you look back over the past 20 years or so, we've seen fairly high correlations between U.S. and international stocks. Um, if you take a benchmark like Morningstar's Developed Markets XUS Index, it has a correlation coefficient of about 0.9 versus the U.S. market. That's much higher than previous levels if you go back further in, in history. So you're not necessarily getting um, as much diversification value as you might think from international stocks. And Amy, what about some other types of investments that people might look to for diversification, like commodities or, or gold, gold or alternative investments? How did those all stack up from a correlation perspective? Do they really provide that much diversification? So it was really a mixed bag. Uh, gold continued to do extremely well as a safe haven and portfolio diversifier. Alternatives held up pretty well overall, um, but other types of commodities um, and real estate had pretty sharp losses in early 2020. So in general, Christine, to wrap up, you know, given the rise that we've seen in correlations in general, over the past couple of decades. How should investors be thinking about portfolio diversification today? Well, I think simpler is better. You probably wouldn't be surprised to hear me say that, that um, when we look at treasury bonds and cash, they have proven to be quite effective as diversifiers for equity. So even though we've seen correlations in some other areas increase, those two look to be decent diversifiers. And then again, I, I think it comes back to time horizon, Susan, that investors really need to know their time horizon till they'll need their money for spending. And so if you go through these periods of equity market weakness, which we investors periodically endure, it's really important that you're not a seller in those periods. And that if you are a seller, you probably want to have cash set aside. If there's any reason that you'll need to be unloading anything but cash for, during those periods, it's probably not a great idea. So I think time horizon can be incredibly informative when thinking about building a diversified portfolio and thinking about maintaining correlations on an ongoing basis. Well, Christine and Amy, thank you both so much for your time today. This is a really important part of the portfolio puzzle uh, diversification. So we appreciate your insights. Thanks so much, Susan. Thanks, Susan. Great to see you both. I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Thank you for tuning in. Six days a week, we deliver the latest news for investors. Just say, Alexa, enable the Morningstar skill or visit Morningstar.com Alexa. Next, Christine Benz and Susan Jabinski discuss the best way to take income from your retirement portfolio. Hi, I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. With yields still low, retirees may be grappling with where to go in their portfolio for income. And they may also be grappling with when to go into their portfolio for income. Joining me today to talk a little bit about that last topic specifically is Christine Benz, Christine's Morningstar's Director of Personal Finance. Hi, Christine. Hi, Susan. Great to be here. 
So we want to talk a little bit today about the timing of taking income from your portfolio. But before we do, let's talk a little bit about where to go in your portfolio or where retirees can go for income these days. We've seen a little bit of an uptick in yields. Where, what should retirees be looking at? Well, it's tricky, Susan. As you indicated, that strategy of extracting income from income-producing securities is really, really tough today, where high-quality bond funds are yielding like 2%. Even dividend-focused equity funds are maybe a little bit above that level, but um, not too much. So I am a big believer in taking a total return approach to your portfolio using income perhaps to fund a portion of your living expenses, but then when your portfolio is up, not getting too worked up about having to take your withdrawals from those appreciated portions of your portfolio. Just use that total return mindset because flexibility is really an important advantage to bring into retirement. If you can be a little bit flexible about where you go for that, for those withdrawals, that can lead you to a more optimal portfolio over time, especially if trimming back appreciated areas reduces risk in your portfolio. So let's pivot and talk a little bit about the when you should be tapping into your portfolio during retirement for income. What should retirees be thinking about? Well, it's a really good question. I like the idea of staying a little bit ahead of it. So that's one of the ideas behind this bucket strategy where on an ongoing basis, you're maintaining one to two years worth of portfolio withdrawals in cash investments, and then you're periodically refilling that cash bucket as you go along. Um, or alternatively, you could it, say it's 2021. In 2021, you would begin setting aside the proceeds either from income distributions or portfolio rebalancing. You'd want to begin building up the funds that you will spend in 2022. So the name, name of the game is to stay ahead of it. And the key reason is that things can happen to your holdings that can change their income production. So a really basic example would be a company that you had relied on a, or a fund that you had relied on for income distributions suddenly reduces its, its income. You'd want to be prepared and having the money filled up a little bit ahead of time helps you stay ahead of those periodic disruptions in income flows. Now, you're a big believer in retirees doing sort of a once per year portfolio review where they go in and try to figure out, you know, how they can source cash flows for the coming year. Is there a particular time of year that can you, they do it at any point over the course of a year? Do you recommend a particular time of year to do this? I think you could do it at any point in the year. From a practical standpoint, I think that year-end or toward year-end is an ideal time because you have some tax planning considerations that come into play. So if you're over age 72, you have those required minimum distributions to contend with. You may want to do some tax loss selling. You may want to do some charitable giving to tie in with the year-end. So I tend to gravitate toward that year-end period. But then again, year-end gets busy for a lot of us, especially with the holiday season. And so if doing it earlier in the year is a better time for you, that's fine too. But ideally, you would tie some of these threads together, required minimum distributions, tax planning, charitable giving. 
Now, what about regular income distributions that a retiree may be receiving over the course of a year? How how should they be handling those? One idea I like is um, if you aren't reinvesting back into the positions, letting those funds build up in some sort of a cash account. And that way you sort of organically refill your spending bucket for the following year through those income distributions. So, you know, if you have bonds and dividend paying stocks in your portfolio and you're spending 4% from that portfolio, well, those organically generated dividends may take you half the way to your 4% today. They may give you 2%. And then you would only need to do rebalancing to supply the additional 2%. But I do like the idea of kind of building a fund that you can carry into the year ahead and and use those distributions to supply a portion of your cash flow needs. So let's say it's uh, later in the year in 2021 and retirees trying to source cash flows for 2022. What other things should be part of the process there? Right. I love the idea of this being a holistic process. So the starting point, in my opinion, would be to think about what sort of withdrawal you plan to take for the year ahead. Then take a look at your portfolio because the contents of your portfolio will have shifted around during the year. So take a look at that portfolio, see how your asset allocation is positioned relative to your targets. If you need to do some repositioning, well, repositioning may be your source of cash flow for the following year. So think about repositioning with an eye toward improving and and aligning your asset allocation with whatever blueprint you're using. You would also want to tie in required minimum distributions. So if you determine that you need to rebalance out of a given area, well, that may be those are your required minimum distributions. So tie in RMDs, tie in tax loss selling, some investors who find themselves in the lowest tax bracket may be able to do what what's called tax gain harvesting, which is a topic that we've written about on Morningstar.com, and also tie in charitable giving. So people who are subject to required minimum distributions have the opportunity to use what's called a qualified charitable distribution to steer a portion of their RMDs toward a charity. So all of those things can be knitted together in part as part of a year-end portfolio overhaul, tax management process. You don't need to be in there on a monthly or quarterly basis overseeing your portfolio and retirement. Chances are you've got other fun things to do. I think a good holistic once annual review is plenty for most investors. Well, Christine, thank you for your time today. Retirement income is, of course, a critical um, topic of conversation among retirees. We appreciate it. Thanks so much, Susan. I'm Susan Javinsky with Morningstar. Thank you for tuning in. And lastly, Greg Warren from Morningstar Research Services talks about Berkshire Hathaway's valuation. Hi, I'm Susan Javinsky with Morningstar. Berkshire Hathaway holds its annual meeting this Saturday. Joining me today to discuss what Morningstar thinks Berkshire is worth is Greg Warren. Greg's a senior analyst with Morningstar, and he covers Berkshire Hathaway for us. Hi, Greg. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Susan. So uh, back in March, several weeks ago, um, we increased our fair value estimate on Berkshire. Uh, We pushed the A shares up to $440,000 fair value, and we boosted the B shares up to $293. 
And that represented about a 16% increase. So what was behind that increase? Well, I mean, it was, it was a combination of several different things. I mean, we, we were quick to take the fair value down when the COVID pandemic hit in March of last year. Um, and it, it was right to do that. I mean, we, we sort of had to see what the impact was going to be overall. Um, and, it, you know, between the investment portfolio and the operating companies, we were expecting to see, you know, a fairly meaningful hit to the operations um, because they do have a lot of economically sensitive uh, businesses. But what happened or ended up happening was second half of the year, the investment portfolio did a lot better than we were, we were hoping. Um, and we started seeing much stronger operating performance out of some of the operating companies, you know, the railroad, the manufacturing service, retailing kind of stand out. Because they even they actually posted better than expected margins or profit profitability, even with you know, pressure on the top line. So when the company dropped their fourth quarter uh, earnings at the end of February, we had a chance to dig through, see what was happening, and update all of our our forecasts going forward. You know, right now at this point, we're looking at probably more normalized earnings this year and next. Um, you know, we'll have to sort of see how much of the cost containment. You know, carry forward, but you know we've always been generally conservative when we when we uh, value Berkshire. So it was nice to see them putting up some good solid numbers and be able to incorporate that in. Now uh, Berkshire will be uh, sharing its first quarter earnings um, in the next several days. Uh, do you expect to see anything in that report that might lead us to reassess our fair value estimate again? Uh, there's there's always reasons to sort of look at things you know from time to time. First quarter earnings. Generally, you, you you don't really want to look at them too deeply because you're only about a quarter of the way through the year. Um, but you know that said, you know there are a few things we're really kind of looking for as we get through this period. One was has Geico returned to more normalized levels of top line growth profitability? Last year was a tough year for them. Um, they had to give a lot of credits uh, to customers. Had to sort of hold off on canceling policies. Um, and we'll have to see sort of where things have panned out. Um, you know, the other thing we'd like to look at is, you know, whether or not the uh, COVID loss reserves are done. You know, they, 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 they put away a couple hundred billion dollars last year. Um, we wanted to sort of make sure that they're not going to put more uh, aside for potential losses as we move forward. Uh, then you know, we'd like to look at sort of BNSF, you know, where the stronger results we saw in the back half of the year. Uh, indication of uh, 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 better performance on their part. Um, you know, we've been critical of them the past several years because they've not adopted precision schedule railroading, which would be a big boost to their margins. But they they actually saw a decent uh, improvement in profitability, you know, back half of last year. So let's see where that is. And then with the MSR, I, I, I noted you know just previously uh, they had a really really big boost in profit margins, better than we were expecting, and and we'd like to see if that's going to be contained. Um, if they can maintain margins at that level, that's sort of a, a better indication about where profitability might be three, four, five years from now. And then I guess the real final thing we'd like to look at, I think a lot of investors are curious about, is how much stock did Buffett buy back during the quarter? You know, He picked up about $9 billion a quarter the last two quarters of last year. Run rate, they were, they were probably doing about 4 or $5 billion through the first month or so based on what we saw. Um, so if they do another nine billion here, that would just you know add more uh, positive news for investors. So now we continue to assign Berkshire a wide economic moat rating. 
Um, given, you know, the economy and the market and what we sort of see going forward, do, do we feel like Berkshire's competitive advantages are stable? Yeah, Berkshire's a little bit tougher than most companies because it, much like we do the valuation, we kind of have to look at the mode on some of the parts basis. We have to sort of split out the different businesses. Um, historically, you know, when we look at the insurance business, it's generally been a no-mo business, you know, overall industry-wide. Uh, Berkshire tends to have some of the better players. They have, you know, the very solid, strong balance sheet uh, ability to to underwrite things that a lot of people couldn't underwrite. But at the same time, they're very, very disciplined when it comes to underwriting. You know, Berkshire is one of the few companies that isn't trying to make up for uh, underwriting losses with a lot of investment gains. So from that perspective, they're they're pretty much a step above everybody else. Uh, Railroad's a solid wide mode business. Um, we'll have to see how that kind of pans out. There's been some talk about some consolidation a few other things as we move forward. Again, with anything with a moat, same with the valuation. We're always looking at uh, competitive positioning and sort of seeing is anything diminishing, is anything improving. Um, I think with the with the energy business, we've seen some improvements. They picked up a pipeline business last year that actually sort of helped widen things out. But overall, solid narrow moat business. You know, they basically exchange uh, excess returns for having an oligopoly or a monopoly in, in, in the areas in which they operate. And then with the MSR business, you know, pretty much solid narrow moat firms across the board there. If, you know, as, as we've, we've seen, you know, this uptick in profitability for them is a permanent addition, that tells us something about how strong those moats really are. You know, the ability to sort of maintain positioning and maintain profitability even in the face of a really, really terrible uh, um, economic condition like we saw this past year. You know, and then as far as the moat, the wide moat moat overall, you know, it really has always put it over the top is sort of this ability to reallocate capital within the businesses. So we're always looking at capital allocation opportunities, what they're doing with the cash, how they're building it up. Um, we're happy to see now that they're finally starting to buy back stock. We've been pushing for them to do that for a number of years now. That'll only help returns over the long run. And then finally, Greg, sort of the, the magic question, where do we think Berkshire, you know, is today price-wise? Do we think it's overvalued, undervalued, fairly valued, and why? Uh, the shares have had a pretty good run of late. They've, they're up about 20% year-to-date, I think, now, and, and they're about 50% up over the past year. But again, that, that was really, you know, coming off of that, that March, you know, 2020 sell-off. Uh, and the stock did struggle for a few months there, but once Buffett announced that he was buying back stock once it was clear to, to investors that they were actually doing that, plus putting money to work in investments and acquisitions. The shares really kind of took off and, and people are sort of reassessing and looking at it and saying, hey, this is a company that can continue to put a ton of cash to work if only just in share repurchases. That would be meaningful for investors in the long run. We look at the fair value right now, you know, where the market's uh, uh Market prices on the stock is trading at about a ten percent discount, a little bit less than that. So it's not as exciting as it was, you know, a few months ago. But at the same time, if we look on a price to book basis, the stock right now is still trading at one point three times, you know, what our estimate of this year's book value will be, and one point two times forward. Historically, it's traded about one four one four five. So yeah, there's still some movement, you know, potential there. You know, as I said, I, you know, our Fair value tends to be a bit more conservative. Sometimes it it doesn't come up with you know sort of what we see in our price to book uh, multiple basis historically. But you know we still think there's you know generally some room to run there because investors do look at it on that basis. 
Well, Greg, thank you so much for your time today and your insights into Berkshire's fair value. We appreciate it. Thank you, Susan. You have a good day too. I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Thank you for tuning in. That does it for this week's Investing Insights podcast from Morningstar. We hope you have enjoyed our program and we welcome your feedback. Please send your comments and questions to podcast at Morningstar.com. From everyone here at Morningstar, thanks for listening. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar Inc. and its affiliates. Morningstar and its affiliates are not affiliated with this guest or his or her business affiliates unless otherwise stated. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. The podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered tax advice. Please consult a tax and or financial professional for advice specific to your individual circumstances. Morningstar Research Services LLC is a subsidiary of Morningstar Inc. and is registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data analysis, or opinions or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision.